Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of the Hope Unlimited Church podcast. We're honored that you're here, and we pray that you find this message both encouraging and inspiring. Open up your Bibles to Matthew 9.35. Matthew 9.35, if you have a phone, you're allowed to use it. We're not in youth group anymore. That I did not let my youth groupers use their phone to look at the Bible because they were lying. They were on Snapchat. So I trust you all. If you have your Bibles, I'm sure it'll be up on the screen for you as well. Matthew 9.35, uh, we're going to read three verses, and then we're going to skip to Matthew 10.5. So these are, these are the first three, okay? It says this. Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful. And that's a really key word right here. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Now, we're going to stop there. I want you to look at chapter 10, verse 5, and it says this. As soon as he gets finished saying all this, these 12, Jesus then sent out. These 12, Jesus then sent out. Now, I know because I know I pay attention to what you guys talk about, and I love your pastor, and he's not crazy. So I know most of y'all already know this, but the more time you spend really studying the Bible the more aware you're going to become of how ignorant we are of so much of what the Bible actually has to say. Uh, not even counting the Old Testament, which is full of metaphor and poetry and a little bit of propaganda, depending on what you're reading. When you start reading the New Testament, uh, this, uh, these, the, the New Testament was written 2,000 plus years ago or around 2,000 years ago by a bunch of dudes who had a completely different worldview than us. And then... Uh, that New Testament was translated, those texts were translated through a minimum of three to four different languages before we ever even get our first English manuscript, the one that none of you read because you can not even understand it because it's written in different English than we use today. Meaning, and I say all that and this is why, without a proper amount of, of study and teaching, it's going to be tough for you to grasp all the nuances of the Bible. But that said, even despite the 2,000-year gap, and even despite all the language barriers, one of the factors that makes southern people like us understand Jesus' teachings better than other people, maybe one of the factors that gives us an advantage when it comes to understanding the Bible, is that Jesus, praise God, spent his time talking to a bunch of hicks. And that's a good thing. We're in Knoxville, Tennessee. Look at the person you're sitting next to and just say, you hick, just tell them own it this morning. It's okay. And I know some of you are like, I'm not a hick. Are you, I, I'm not even from here. I moved here from Pennsylvania or Ohio. Well, maybe, maybe you're not like from here, but you're here now. And that means you are an honorary hick. I'm from Tennessee. I can dub you a hick. And that's good. I don't want you to be offended. This is good. And let me go ahead and tell you why I think about it. Okay. When Jesus refers to the kingdom of God, which is the thing he talks about most in the Bible, when he refers to the kingdom of God, this is how he describes it. The kingdom of God is like a farmer planting seeds. The kingdom of God is like a big field with weeds in it that need to be pulled. The kingdom of God is like a fishing net. Pay, pay attention. He uses examples like this because of who he's talking to. A bunch 
of Hicks, a bunch of country folk. Jesus is talking to people who grew up in farming communities, and so he's speaking their language, and that's why I say that on some level, Southerners like us might actually have an advantage when it comes to understanding the Bible and things that Jesus says, and this is why. Even if you did not grow up in the country or on a farm, you probably know a bunch of people who did. I know where coal came from. It is Bear Creek, Alabama. Everybody there grows up in the country because the only thing in Bear Creek is a Dollar General. Do they even have a Dollar General? It, it's new. It's, it was the only place on planet Earth without a Dollar General, and now they have one. And many of you share the same sentiment. You either grew up in the country or on a farm or around country people, and I don't know how they do it in Knoxville, Tennessee, on the east side of Tennessee, but I know how they do it on the west side of Tennessee. That's where I'm from. Where I'm from West Tennessee. I know how they do it in South Fulton, Tennessee. You guys remember... Uh, Homecoming week in high school, just by a show of hands, show of hands, right? Everybody who didn't raise their hand is because you're homeschooled, so every week was homecoming week for you. So for the rest of us, for the cool people in the room who, um, I'm just kidding, don't be offended at me. He's like, Cole gets an email later, like, did he just diss all homeschooled people? I'm, yeah, but it's okay, y'all can handle it. For the rest of us, we had this thing called homecoming week, where right before a homecoming game, we always had themed days at school, and, and we... Our homecoming week did not look like the rest of North America. Um, yes, we had Tacky Day, and yes, we had School Spirit Day on Friday, but we also had Drive Your Tractor to School Day. That's a real thing. Like, every year, because I live in a farming community, your boy, your boy drove a Jeep Cherokee with two 12s in it, and so I'm pulling up to school listening to Ludacris and Lil Wayne and stuff like that, <laughs> and I am pulling in behind people on tractors, once a year, I can look out the windows of my school and see the red case tractors, the green John Deere tractors, the orange Kubotas, and if you were too poor to own a tractor, you drove your lawnmower to school. <laughs> it was allowed. It was cool. I mean, and, and, you know, I say lawnmower. I want to be clear. I lived in South Fulton. People can't afford zero-turn lawnmowers. I'm talking about the red snapper that your grandpa fixed <laughs> in, you know, in 1975. People, Mary knows this. She is from the same area. I am not exaggerating. I, I went to a school where we had drive your tractor to school day. That is West Tennessee for you. We're the real hicks of Tennessee. Like, I love Knoxville, and it's sweet. And you have people that look like country people and dress like country people. We have verified farmers, actual country people. You can drive around East Tennessee, and you can see the mountains and you can see the lakes and the city and the sun sphere and the stadium and all these beautiful college people. The only thing I promise you that you're going to see when you drive around West Tennessee is dead deer and corn everywhere. It's always corn. And I just lost everybody in here who has TikTok because the biggest sound right now, it's corn. And you're all going to be singing it. And that's okay. I had this message planned before that went viral. And so I told him, I was like... I, Everyone's going to be like not thinking about the message because they're going to be singing the most addicting song I've ever heard in my whole life. But uh, it's everywhere. Uh, when you come to my hometown, on every side of, I, I will even say this, okay? I won't say every side. At any point when you're driving on one side of you, there's going to be a cornfield. At any point where we live, we live in a university town. I'm talking like they are playing Knoxville uh, for their homecoming game. UTM is playing Knoxville, right? We live in a university town. There, there's a decent amount of stuff. I mean, it's bigger than some of the towns you guys grew up in. But, like, you can be at one spot where the giant football field is behind you. The campus is on your left. 
and everything to do in town is in front of you, like the axe throw in place and cook out and places to eat, all that other stuff. And to your right, a cornfield. Everywhere you go, there's corn, and it's always corn. Uh, corn is king where I'm from, and I'm not hating on corn. It's important to our region. There's lots of money in it, and that's because corn can do a lot of different things. Corn, you've got cornbread, corn on the cob, cream corn, uh, corn nuggets. You've got uh, popcorn, cornstarch. I feel like I'm in Forrest Gump right now. Boiled shrimp, baked shrimp, fried shrimp. I don't even know if this congregation is old enough to have seen Forrest Gump. I don't even know if you were allowed to watch Forrest Gump growing up. I don't know, but I did, and that's what I felt like when I was saying that just then. But uh, and even outside of food, corn has a lot of uses. Corn is used to make penicillin. It's used to make sugar. For any Chris Stapleton fans, it's used to make Tennessee whiskey. Am I allowed to say whiskey at your church? Okay. Uh, it's used to make Tennessee whiskey. It's used to make ethanol. Uh, it, when Thanksgiving comes around, what do you decorate your yard with? Corn. You put corn. Is that weird? I mean, have you ever thought about how strange it is? We decorate our yards with corn. We put corn all in our house. Why? Because corn is like the utility player when it comes to food. Corn can do anything. But... Of all the things that corn cannot do, or of all the things that corn can do, would you like to know at least one thing that corn cannot do? Corn can't walk. And that's a weird note. It's a weird note. I'm just on, this is going to be the strangest note you take down. It's also the title of the message today. Corn, in all of its glory, simply cannot walk. Now, I'm going somewhere with this, okay? So just hang in there with me. But first, humor me real fast. By a show of hands, and you're going to have to wait till I get done to actually raise your hand. By a show of hands, how many of you have ever seen a corn stalk pluck itself up out of the ground, hop into the house, shed its outer covering, jump into a vat of boiling water, get out of the vat of boiling water, butter itself up, and put itself on your plate? How many of you have ever seen that happen? None of you. Neither have I. Why? Because corn can't walk. As vital as corn is to my region and to the rest of the world, corn is harvested. It is our job to bring corn in from the field to around our table. And some of you are like you're picking up where I'm going right now. And this is the same, the same thing that Jesus is talking about in Matthew 9. Let's look at it again. Matthew 9, 37. He said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So Jesus is comparing all these people that are ready to step into the kingdom of God to a, a giant harvest that's ready to be brought in. He's like, man, y'all have no idea how many people are ready to experience what you experience every single week. You have no idea how many people are ready to know God in the same way that you do. They may not know it yet, but they are ready to be brought into the house of God from their place in the wild. So... Pray that God would raise up people who are willing to actually go and do that work. Pray. Pray that God would raise up Christians who are able to move from the most important thing in their life, being their close-knit friendships and their relationship with God and what God's doing in their life, people who would, will, who would be willing to say, I actually care about the other people in my life too. I care about the people in my city and the people in my community. Pray that God would raise up those people. But Jesus, being the trickster that he is, he doesn't stop there. He, he immediately, he says, pray that God would do this. Pray that God would send people out in the harvest to bring it in. And then look at what we see in chapter 10, verse number 5. It says, these 12, Jesus then sent out. 
So first, Jesus tells the disciples to pray that God would send other people into the harvest. And then Jesus uses the disciples to be the answers to their own prayer. And just in case, maybe you grew up in church where you weren't taught this. That is still how God works. God wants to partner with you to become the answer to the very prayers that you are praying. And a lot of times, that shakes up our thoughts because we think that every one of our prayers, that the answer to it should be a Hail Mary miracle. You know what I'm saying? And so we pray things, and we're like, God, I'm so tired of being single. I don't want to be married. Send him. Send her. And what we think is that we're going to get up one day and open up the door, and a 10 out of 10 is going to be standing on the doorstep in a cutoff shirt with biceps ready to come into your life. And unfortunately, that's not how it works. We want God to just magically make things happen. And God is like, no, 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 sweetie, I don't want you to be alone. I love you and I have someone for you. But maybe start here. Brush your teeth every day. And we're like, what? That's a little much. You know, he's like, work on keeping your house clean. Uh, Work on, this one's really going to blow some of our minds. Go on a date. Right? We're like, well, are we allowed to do that? Yes. Even as Christians, you are allowed to go out uh, with other people on dates. He might even say this. Go to the gym and start working on your physical health. Because if you want a 10, you got to become a 10. You know, like you got you to work on yourself. He wants to partner with you. We'll pray things like, Lord, help me in my finances. I'm broke. And he's like, I don't want you to be broke. But, but maybe, maybe you could start here. Budget. And we're like, mm-mm. No, I don't want to do that. And then he's like, okay, okay. Remember all those, the chants that you make on Sunday mornings? What if you said it and then also gave? Like you didn't just say it, but you actually gave in the offering, or you actually started tithing and got consistent with, with your giving, and you trusted me with your finances. You know what? We'll pray, especially now. God, help me with my stress and my anxiety and my depression. I'm really struggling my mental health. And he's like, I hate that you're dealing with this. And so this is what we're going to do, okay? Because what we want is for to answer an altar call and for it to go away. And do I believe that God meets us in moments like that and cancels out things and absolutely wrecks our lives in moments? For sure I do. I also believe that sometimes God is going to work with you through the process of healing. And so we pray for stuff like that. And you know what he does? He says, okay, okay, I want you to experience wholeness in your mind too. So first things first, stop binge scrolling on TikTok eight hours a day. And we're like, that is too hard, you know. And so then he's like, okay, go to sleep and get eight hours of sleep every night. And again, we're like, but I can't do that if I'm binge watching TikTok. So I'm like, I don't know how that's going to happen. And then he's like, you know, maybe some other things you could do, just throwing it out there, go on a walk. You know, get some exercise every day. Get out in the sunlight. Stop listening to the garbage music that you listen to all the time that are hurting you. Maybe don't surround yourself with the people that you're surrounding yourself. Like, God wants to work with you to be the answer to your prayers. And unfortunately, we don't like that. We would prefer that God do all the work that Him, He just take care of it. That's so much easier. We want God to miraculously fix our marriage without us putting in the effort to fix our marriage. We want God to set us free from the addiction that we're not even willing to open up about the fact that it exists to anybody. You know what I'm saying? Like, we're asking God to do things that we aren't even willing to do ourselves. This is my favorite. We pray, and I'm going to say this word really intentionally. We pray for a mystical idea of revival 
to take place in our churches and in our cities and in our schools. We never put any identifying factors as to what that revival is actually going to look like. That's why I say it's mystical. Just, God, send revival, please. We pray for it, and then we neglect to do the work of inviting people to our homes and making friends. And check this out. Inviting people to church. Why? Because we want, we want God to do it all for us. It would be way easier if God would just get this stuff done. And, and there, there's only one problem with that. One problem. Another weird note for you to take down. God doesn't pick corn. And I know you're like, what? Let me explain it. God doesn't pick corn. We see it in the very beginning of the Bible through the book of Genesis. God creates the heavens and the earth. He plants the seed. He established the weather system. He sends the rain. And then what does he do? What does he do? He puts mankind in the garden to tend the ground and to bring in the harvest. Jesus, the Bible says that he is seated. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. It's a super poetic way of saying that the moment Jesus put his Holy Spirit on the inside of you, Whatever happens within the kingdom of God on the earth is now a result of you. He's given you the work. He's done his part. <laughs> He's done his work. Now it's time for you to get to work. It's time for you to go and bring in the harvest. And for those of you that are still like, what did, does he mean by God doesn't pick corn? Let me, let me really, really hone it in for you, okay? Whether it's concerning your marriage, your mental health, your finances, your walk with God, or you bringing people into the kingdom of God, God does not take care of your responsibility. God does not handle your responsibilities. If God has asked you to do something and you refuse to do it, one of two things is going to happen. Number one, it won't get done at all, which is terrifying if we're talking about the souls of people. Or number two, he'll give someone else the opportunity to obey him, but he will not do it himself. God does not pick corn. God does not do the things that he's already given us the responsibility to do. All right? So look, look real quick. Let me, let me show you what I'm talking about. Matthew 28. This is the Great Commission. Anyone else grow up Baptist in here? Just good old Southern Baptist? Whoop, hit me Because I know you're Baptist. You're not going to scream. All right? Because I did too. Hit me, with a, hit me with a whoop whoop real quick. Whoop whoop. Any Baptist? Whoop whoopers. Come on. There we go. Woo, woo. All right. Matthew 28. I made you do that because we're talking about the Great Commission. And this is all Baptist people talk about. I know. I've been, like, all my family are Baptists. I grew up Baptist. My whole church is pretty much 80% full of Baptist people. So we love the Great Commission. I say we because I still identify with that. We love the Great Commission. This is what he says, okay? Jesus came and told his disciples, I've given you all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach these new disciples to obey all the commands that I've given you, and be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus, right as he is departing from the earth to go and take his place in heaven, he gives us a responsibility. God did not transform you so that you could just chill and do you for the rest of your life. God did not pour out his undeserved love and mercy and grace on you, uh, rescue you from a life dominated by sin, and then place his spirit on the inside of you so that you could waste your life making as much money as you possibly can just so you can buy a bunch of stuff that someone else is going to inherit when you die anyways. That is not why you're here. You've got a responsibility to bring in the harvest. You've got a responsibility to reach the rest of the world. And so now the only question is, how do we actually do that? Because I can stand up here all day long and scream about 
reach people, change Knoxville, I don't know, bring in the harvest and be vague or whatever. The question is, how do we do that? Because what I'm pretty sure we can all agree on is that at this point in the game, we know how not to do it. I can tell you what I will not be doing. I will not be signing up to do the Kirk Cameron, confront people with the Ten Commandments, make them feel bad, and get cussed out and call it evangelism thing. That ain't me anymore. Like, take me off, take me off the list. It's weird, and it's kind of creepy. I don't want to be a part of that. We can, and speaking of the late 80s, or 90s, early 2000s debacle that we called evangelism, in the same vein, do not sign me up to go door-to-door, Jehovah's Witness style. Don't sign me up to do any street preaching. Don't sign me up to put tracks on people's windows in parking lots. And God forbid, do not sign me up to go and debate university professors with half-cocked apologetics <laughs> that I read from some book that was written in 1985. Like, that ain't me. Sure, like, God in His grace may have used those efforts in the past, but there are much more effective and less weird ways of reaching people for the kingdom of God. And I say less weird on purpose, and we'll get there in a second, but, but like, all you got to do is look at Jesus' life. You know, Jesus, like, most of his evangelism, the majority of it, was really organic. He had a conversation with a woman beside a watering fountain, right? In our day, that's like a gas station. He just had a conversation with a woman, and she's going to get something to drink, he went over to Zacchaeus's house to eat uh, some fish and hummus. Probably that's probably what they had back then. And then he invited his fishing, or he invited his buddies over to go fishing. It was it was simple stuff, and that's how it can look for you too. You don't have to make evangelism or outreach hard. It can be it can be really, really simple. Like uh, for for most of us, outreach, <laughs> our outreach should look a lot less like outreach and a lot more like leaving a big tip at the person's table that you go to the night before or helping somebody with homework, depending on what season of life you're in, or being a listening ear to someone who needs it or inviting someone over to your house or, wait for it, inviting someone to church. <laughs> it is actually that simple. And it doesn't take, like, it doesn't, oh, evangelism is easy and it does not require you being creepy, okay? Jesus wasn't creepy. Je Please, someone hear me. Jesus... Say it out loud, okay? I, I, I want to hear your voices. Here's, say, Jesus, Jesus wasn't, wasn't creepy. creepy. Despite what you've seen in the past, you do not have to be a breathy Christian to be effective for the kingdom of God. Some of you are like, huh? This is a breathy Christian. You know who I'm talking about, okay? God, we just pray, Father. The, Lord, you would just come. We'll be here in our pants. You know that? Like you're praying for someone that's kind of weird, and you're like, oh, God, what? Well, you don't have to do that. It's fine that they're doing it. I'm not, not bashing it. They can be breathy Christians. I'm not going to be. And you don't have to be a breathy Christian either. Why? Because it's creepy. And your first conversation with someone does not have to be about religion or politics. Why? Because it's creepy. And for those of you that pray in tongues, like me, which is probably most of you in the room, because I know where most of you come from, when you pray for someone who's not quite there yet, you don't have to pray in tongues out loud. Why? Because it's creepy. It's creepy. You, we're like, what are we talking about today? What is this right now? You, people should like you. Is that so much to ask? That people should like the people of God? People should enjoy being in your, why do you think people follow Jesus around? Because he was creepy? No. 
Because he got invited. You realize he got invited to the cool people parties, right? Why? Because people liked him. He was enjoyable to be around. He was friendly. And as it goes with you, like, you, you don't have to be creepy, and you also don't have to be a pastor. You don't have to know your way around the difficult theology concepts. You don't have to be a worship leader. You don't even have to be serving on a team in order to be effective for the kingdom of God. Do you know what you have to be? Friendly. Friendly. And I feel like this is a good moment to just kind of bring this out and say this, like, just so we're all aware. Christians are allowed to interact with people on social media without being mean or getting into theology debates 24-7. Number one, it's weird. If you do it, you're weird. Number two, it's annoying. And number three, that is just not how Jesus did it. Man, Jesus stood up for the oppressed, and he helped poor people without making them feel bad for being poor. And he for sure didn't hold up signs or get on Facebook talking about how all gay people are going to burn in hell one day. That is an evangelism. That's condemnation. And the driving force of Jesus' ministry was not condemnation. It was invitation. It was an invitation to sit around his table of forgiveness, regardless of your past and regardless of your inability to keep his rules. And yes, it was an invitation to follow him and experience freedom from sin. But if we are more interested in confrontation and condemnation than we are invitation, we've missed it. We've missed the point completely. Jesus' whole ministry was a ministry of invitation. Check this out. Matthew 9, 36. <laughs> it's one of my favorite verses. We just read it. It says, when Jesus, when, he, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. We can't afford to forget that Jesus' mission was not to come and make bad people feel bad for all the bad things that they were doing. And Jesus does not view humanity as some vile and disgusting problem that just needs to be dealt with. According to the Bible, it says he has compassion for us. And he sees us for who we really are, which is human beings who are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And I promise, if we started viewing people through the lens of them being harassed and helpless instead of those greedy, racist conservatives, instead of those demonic liberals, instead of those filthy criminals who deserve just action for their what they've done, instead of stupid college kids, or instead of whatever title you give the group of people that you like the least. If we started treating people with compassion, instead of posting about them or publicly shaming them all the time, my guess is that if we start treating people the same way Jesus treated people, we would see some of the same results that Jesus saw. And what were those results? Look at Matthew 9.35. It says this. Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of, king, uh, of the kingdom. Amazing. We love that. But look at this next part. And healing every disease and every affliction. The end goal of the good news of Jesus is healing, okay? Mental, spiritual, physical, financial, relational healing. And people will begin experiencing that kind of healing, but only when they experience and encounter the compassion of Jesus through you. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, now the only interaction that they have with the body of Christ 
is you. You are the compassion that's going to lead to that healing in their lives. And you were saved with an assignment. You were saved with, with, with a purpose in mind. When, when you inherited, when you got saved, when you inherited eternal life, you also inherited an assignment. You inherited a job. And that job was not you dipping out from the world and just enjoying your church friends and doing your own little community in here, just being you and being exclusive and hoping that God changes your life. The minute you said yes to Jesus, you inherited the responsibility of reaching the rest of the world, not, not leaving the world, but immersing yourself into the pain and suffering and chaos of the world. You guys know this stuff. You guys talk about theology. And I know I know this is stuff that gets talked about from this platform because I listen to it like I know it gets talked about. But that is your job as a believer. That's why you're here. And sometimes, sometimes doing that, bringing in that harvest, sometimes it looks like you one conversation at a time. Sometimes it looks like one text at a time. Man, bring it, bring it in that harvest. Dude, why, why do we have to bring in the harvest? You know, Jesus, he said, <laughs> you got to love it. You know, he never said, pray to the God of the harvest that he would bring in the harvest. He said, pray that God would raise up other people to go bring in the harvest. We talked about it. God doesn't pick corn. What, 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 corn can't walk. Okay. They need someone to show them the way. Corn, corn doesn't make it into the house all by itself. It needs someone to invite them into the family. They need someone to, to offer them an opportunity to come be a part. And that is, that's our job. That's your job. Man, I know you've had some moments at church and you're getting wrecked and you're working on spiritual formation and you're learning how to pray and you're learning how to read and things are happening good around here. But like, don't neglect the other part of your responsibility as a believer, which is engrafting the rest of the world into what's going on within your life, all right? And when you do, when you're, when you're faithful to bring in that harvest, and like I said, sometimes it's going to look at one text at a time, one conversation at a time, one meal at a time, one invite at a time. But when you're faithful to the small, when you're faithful to one, one piece of corn here, one piece of corn there, eventually you get to see combine moments. And we're just sticking with the whole corn analogy here, so just bear with me. But when you, when you read the Bible... Jesus spent his whole life investing into 12 pieces of corn, right? Just 12 disciples, just picking them and bringing them into the fold. And spent his whole life worried about, or his whole ministry career, worried about those 12. So then he departs. Not long after, those 12 turn into a couple of hundred after he's risen from the dead. And then they were faithful with their few, with what little they had, and in one day, on the day of Pentecost, those few hundred people multiplied into 2,000 people overnight. They had a combine experience where, where the masses were reached. But why did they have that? Because they were faithful with the little. One piece of corn here, one piece of corn there. And over the last two millennia, those 2,000 people have now resulted in millions upon millions upon millions of people, man. And that's the same with y'all. And this is where I... I'm just kind of going to go off script for a second. I have had the coolest opportunity to watch Hope Unlimited transform throughout the last couple of years. I've seen, I've seen, I've gotten to watch from a distance. Um, you guys take risk and you guys grow and you guys change and you guys do certain things and then stop doing certain things. And I've seen, I've seen, um, I've seen you guys almost get a little bit of a footing 
as a church recently. Doesn't it feel like that? It feels like even watching from a distance, I'm like, man, it feels so stable right now. It feels good, like, like we're finally moving in a direction that's not surrounded by, like, dr- drama or even just, you know, worldwide d- diseases and stuff like that. Like, it's nice. It's nice to be in here. And, at, you know, as I've been watching, uh, it's like I feel like I've recently established s- some structure, as, as some really good structure. And what I've known and what I've seen is that y'all have really grown in depth and you've really grown internally. And really, I showed up today because months ago, me and Cole were talking. And I was telling him, man, I feel like God is preparing for you guys to step into a season where you start growing in width and you start growing externally. Um, I don't, I just hope y'all never take this for granted, like what's happening here. This is dope. This is amazing. Like, am I allowed to say the word dope? Okay, just making sure. This is super cool, and I love that, and, and I say this not to be derogatory, but I love that this relatively small group of people are having great Sunday services, and I love that you're having powerful prayer meetings, and I love that you're having, you're about to start the Wednesday night things where you're going to go deeper, and I love that your small groups have taken off, and that your kids' ministry is doing great right now. I love that, but if the move of God happening within this relatively small group of people never reaches the rest of Knoxville, we've missed the point. You've missed the point. The idea is not that this is some like cool club reserved for just you know the, the holy few or the few that really love God more than everybody else. Surely that is not the goal. There are people in Knoxville, Tennessee who will never encounter the love or power of God unless they encounter it through you. You are responsible for this region of people. And it's time for some of you to stop saying that you are deeply committed to what God is doing in East Tennessee when you're not even deeply committed to what he's doing in your church. When you're not even deeply committed to inviting people to church. Man, I probably, some of you have been here for two years now and you cannot point to one person in this room that's here because of you. You can't point to a single person sitting in this room that was here because you invested your life into them and you invited them. That's a problem. What's happening here? I told Anna a second ago. This is the best kept secret in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is. It's the best kept secret. That's positive and negative. It's positive because it's the best kept secret. It's negative because it's still a secret. No one knows what's happening here. Y'all do realize Knoxville is one of the fastest growing cities in the whole southeast. You have an opportunity that I will never have. I pastor Overflow in McKenzie with 3,500 people. It'll never be the fastest growing city anywhere at any point in time. And you guys have the opportunity to, to reach people from all over the world, from all ages, all races, all walks of life. And there, but the, the, the problem though is that some of those people are never going to be reached until you reach them, until you become friends with them, until you invite them into your life and invite them to church. And I don't want you to hear this and know that you're one of the people who hasn't invited anybody to come to church and fall back on, but I lead a small group, but I'm a part of a serve team, but I give in the offering, so I've done my, I've done my role. Yeah, that's nice. And you should continue doing all of that. 
but the harvest is plentiful. And your role, you doing your role within the church is not a substitute for you bringing people to the church. <laughs> You've got two roles to fulfill around here, man. And uh, Earlier, I guess it was actually last year, closer to Easter, we started challenging our church with this same kind of approach, like challenging them to not be complacent, honestly. And, and the word, I use complacent it, uh, kind of subjectively here. When I say complacent, I don't mean that they're complacent with God. I would even say our church, for the most part, is growing in God more than almost any of them ever have. But we were complacent in the sense that it was almost becoming okay with us that people weren't experiencing what we were. It was becoming okay with us that people weren't having the kind of dynamic community that we were in. It was becoming okay. We were cool with it. We're cool with it. Like, as long as it's good for me, as long as it's good for us, hey, praise God, shout hallelujah. You know, like, we're we're happy about that. And so we, we started confronting our church about it. And, and honestly, man, we saw some repentance. And when I say repentance, I don't just mean people are like, I'm so sorry that I've been doing this. God, no, repentance is change. It's like you hear a word and then you respond to the word. And they responded to it. And uh, for, for like weeks, we, we wore these little bracelets. And, uh, and this is why, this is why. We started praying and just kind of seeking God on the matter because we knew that he was really pushing us. And we got this word from the Lord that we were going to have 800 people at our church by Easter Sunday. 800. And so we do everything that we know to do to start reaching our city. We are wearing these little 800 bracelets everywhere we go. Someone made me a little 800 jersey that I wear all the time that I really like. And we started inviting everybody. You could not go to our city and not be invited to go to Overflow Church. Um, and, and it was really cool. And we prayed our guts out. Like, we didn't just do the work. We also prayed in the middle of that. And we sought God and we prayed our guts out. And we, we didn't meet our goal of 800. We surpassed it. We saw a thousand people show up on Easter Sunday morning. And I don't say that, who cares about what's happening in West Tennessee? Y'all are in East Tennessee. I say that because that is, if I've ever heard vision for Hope Unlimited Church, that is it. That's what I see for this church, man. You, you guys, can I, can I, can I like prophesy? Is that the right word? Okay. Like, when I, even during worship today, I just, some of our kids, kids team and, and our worship team just prepare. I see two services coming in the future because you guys don't have enough space. Like, this cannot be enough space. This cannot stay enough space. That's unacceptable. It's unacceptable for what God's doing in this church. If it does, it's your fault and you've missed on what God's doing in this city. It is unacceptable for this to be enough space. This is a youth room. This is what this is. This is a youth room in the future. I see two services. I see an album from this band. You guys freaking rock, and you're, you're not just good. You're, like, anointed. I, I do see a youth ministry. The, for anyone, for any of our high school students in here, like, there's a youth ministry coming back to this church. It's not gone forever. I see a youth ministry. I see, I see fathers coming to this church. This is not, you need to stop calling it a young church. This is not a young church. This is a church where people of all ages, all races, and all walks of life can encounter the presence of God. This, I see this being a church that reaches the city of Knoxville and beyond, a place where people come and have defining moments in the presence of God, a place where people get immersed into community, a place where people hear rich teaching, 
a place where they grow, a place where they can actually begin to have moments where they're going, oh, I grew up in church, but I never knew God. I've never seen him like this before. I've seen sides of his face that I've never seen before. Man, that's the vision for Hope Unlimited Church. That's it. You cannot, and it's on y'all. I'm not the one losing sleep over this. <laughs> I love y'all, but I have a whole other group of people to watch and, and to like shepherd and to lead. You should be losing as much sleep over people in this town who haven't experienced God as he does. You should be losing that same sleep. You should go into gas stations 24-7 and be going, I say gas stations because that's like a place where everyone goes. You should be looking around and scoping it out, and you should start conversations. And you, man, we go to dinner last night, and Anna starts talking to our server, and she doesn't just say, come to church. She gets her phone number, and she's talking to her, and I'm like, this is amazing, like Pastor Anna is killing it. That should be you too, though. That's not their job. To be honest with you, that's not their job at all. Their job is leading you and investing into you and making sure that he has good doctrine and like preaching the word of God. You're though, you now become the hands and feet in this community. And if you're not doing it, you're missing out on it. And you're missing God's call for this church. Two years from now, this building should be laughable. It should be laughable that your church can fit into this building two years from now. Why? Because y'all have done the work. You've gone into the harvest. You've said, yes, corn can't walk. And you said, I know it. I'm going to go bring it in. Today is a super practical response. I don't, I'm not going to have a fresh start moment if you need to receive the love of God or make a recommitment of your faith or anything like this. This is, this is what I'm going to do. Stand up. Stand up all of your feet real quick. If, if you're willing, if you're able, just jump up with me. I mentioned a few of like the little strategies that our church used to like reach people. And all of that is super important. Uh, the bracelets were cool. And I know y'all have got some cards and stuff like that that you can hand people as well. And the shirt was cool. And all of that was cool. But at the end of the day, it was people praying that ended up making it happen. Why, why do you think that long before Jesus sends out his disciples, he says, wait, before I send you out into the harvest field, I need you to learn how to pray for those people. Like, I need you to develop a heart. I need your heart to be broken. And my question is, is your heart broken for this city, or did you just move here to have church so that you could have good church? Because there's a difference. If you want good church, there's a season where you come and you get you get poured into and you grow and you heal. We call it a, a sitting season at our church. We, we make people take that sometimes. Just come and have a sitting season. Just come receive. Some of y'all been in a sitting season for two years, and it's time for that to be over. Like, there are people that will never encounter God if you don't do it. So this is what I want us to do. Today, as we, as we get ready just to kind of move on to whatever's next, I don't want to mess up Jesus' strategy on reaching the people. The first step was praying. The first step was our, our hearts being broken. And I, I, I remember all the way back in high school, and I, I still do this in different ways today. I remember in high school when I got saved, and I had my initial encounter with God that changed everything about me. You know, no one told, had to tell me to pray for my classmates. No one had to, like, encourage me to be heartbroken about the fact that my friends were, had not encountered God and were living in perpetual hell all day long. No one had to remind me of that. I knew it. 
I saw it. And the first thing that I learned how to do, I didn't know how to have a quiet time where I just sat there and listened to the Lord and didn't say anything. I didn't know how to do that stuff yet. You know what I knew how to do, though? I knew how to intercede for people. I knew how to say, God, this person needs you. And so you know what I would do in my quiet time? I'd get out my yearbook. And I'd open it up and I'd get on my floor and I'd put a little rubber band on my door so that my mom would know not to come in because it's always weird when people walk in on you and you're praying. And like, no matter how holy you are, it's weird. You know, you're like, God. And someone's like, do you need laundry done? And I'm like, no. And I'd open up my yearbook and I'd be on my floor on my knees because, you know, as, an eight, uh, as a 16-year-old, it wasn't an anointed prayer. I wasn't on my knees. And so I'd get on my knees and I would, I would go through my yearbook person by person. Lord, I'd pray for... I'd pray for Nick Wright. I'd say, God, I know, I know, I know he's, he's smoking weed right now, and I know he's a proclaimed atheist or, or at least an agnostic, and, uh, but I thank you that that doesn't intimidate you. You're not, you're not scared of that. Like, you, you are so real, and I pray, God, that you would show up in his life in a way where he can't deny it, that I'd move on. And I'd say, God, I pray for Peyton Sweater. I know she just went through this breakup, and I know she's struggling, and I know she's heartbroken, and I pray that you'd meet her right where she is. I pray for, for Hope Neighbors. God, I know she just got a diagnosis uh, over her dad, and she and your word says that blessed are those who mourn, and blessed are the brokenhearted, and that those are the people that end up like having moments with you. And so I pray that you would use this moment, and I would I would weep, and I would cry, and I would pray for kids that I went to school with, and, I, and we we still do that all the time. And today I want to give someone an opportunity to 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 once again, man, let God break your heart for your city. Look. I, this church is important. It is. But you're, like, really, you're not here to just have a sick church. You're here to reach people. People are dying having not had encounters with God. People are just living their lives. They're wasting their lives. And it's not because God doesn't love them. It's because we don't love them. It's because we're not reaching them. So just close your eyes. And what I want you to do is maybe on the count of three, we'll start praying. And after that, I don't know what's going to happen. I'm probably just going to hand the microphone to Cole and say, handle it and do whatever we need to do after this. But I want to—I want you to take, I'm going to make you take like 20 seconds of silence. Don't even say anything. I want you to ask God, who is it I'm supposed to be praying for right now? Like, let him pop up a picture in your mind. Who is it that he wants you to reach out to at your work, at the favorite coffee shop that you go to, in your friend group? where some of them aren't even here. Who is it that he wants? Just close, eyes closed all across the room. Lord, speak to us. Speak to us. Let him speak to you. 